love their families well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, it's my privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker, who is really not a guest. He's been a part of our church for a long time, um, but this will be his first time to uh, step up on the stage here in our main services. Uh, Jeremy's a great friend of mine, and he's been teaching for probably six or seven years in our student ministry, and he is um, definitely one of their favorites, so if you hear them start cheering here as he walks up, that's why. And uh, so we appreciate Jeremy's investment. He and his wife, Kara, also oversee um, our young adult ministry. And so really appreciate their uh, ministry and his heart for the rising generations. And uh, now he gets to speak to us in the older generations this morning. So Jeremy, come as you continue our series here this morning. Oh. <laughs> All right, I guess we're done then. Um, so, well, thank you. Uh, for many of you who uh, know about CCC and know about uh, the values, and if you uh, saw them earlier, you know, one of them is purposeful serving, and that's uh, where we try to get you uh, matched into your gifting, and so they say, you know, that if you just don't know, just come try it out, and so I don't know if this is actually purposeful serving, or if this is purposeful, purposeful asking, or what that is, but uh, uh, I am here this morning, uh, to hopefully, to uh, bring you some thoughts that I've had this week, and uh, to hopefully... Um, impart at least one thing on someone in the room, and hopefully uh, God will continue uh, to bless that. So grateful to be here and grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, and I got asked earlier, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for a, a career change or anything. Uh, I'm just, a, uh, I'm just uh, here to bring the message this morning, and hopefully it'll touch your lives. <clears throat> and so um, we're in the sermon series called Never Forget, and we're looking at the book of Judges. And so I got thinking, and it's like, what is this, or where does this relate? And so this is where I got. And so you're 18 years old. You just graduated high school, all right? And all the dun, 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 all that's gone. All that's quiet. All the chairs are put away. All the food is stored in your chest freezer and your grandparents' chest freezer and your aunt and uncle's chest freezer. All the food's put away. The chairs are returned. The tent is down. The presents are opened. And now here you are. Everyone who came, all of your family members, all of your extended family members, everyone who gave you a pat on the back or gave you a hug and said, good job, well done. We're proud of you. You have accomplished such a great thing. They love you and they want you to know that they do, that they do feel that way about you and that they want you to know that you have accomplished this great task. And maybe, you know, in this scenario, high school could be college, could be something else, right? And they just want you to also know don't remember, or don't forget, remember what got you here. Remember the hard work. Remember the late nights. Remember the encouragement you got from your family members, from your teachers, from your parents, and from all those people that were in your lives that got you to this point. And so here you are. Here we are. For 15, 16 young adults here at CCC, that became a reality just a few weeks ago. For some of our young adults, I'm sure that that is hopefully not too far in the rearview mirror, and you can remember that. For some of the students in the room, you're aspiring to get to that point. And for some of you older singles and parents, hopefully you can remember back to what that felt like. And I think if I, you know, as one of them, I sit back and think, man, if I knew then what I know now, 
how differently that journey would look. But you stand there and you are on the cusp of being able to go out into this great big thing called the world. And you're able to just go out and you have the ability to take that next step. And what is that next step? Could be college, could be work, could be a trade school. Who knows? But you have that opportunity and everyone has supported you and loved you and told you that you've done a great job and now they're all gone and it's just you. And one of their great things that they have said is, you need to remember. And they tell you that. And why do they tell you that? They tell you that because at some point, they want to know where you're headed. And where you're headed may be, are you going to a party? Are you going to a friend's house? Are you moving in to your own apartment? Are you going into a dorm? And depending upon where you go, there's going to be others that are going to come along with you. And those others may not have been with you up until this point. They are now new in your story. They're now new in your life. And they are bringing all of their experiences and their life and everything that has gotten them to that point, they are now bringing and you are interacting with them. So then the question is, what now? Maybe there's a really good-looking man or woman. Maybe there's a beer or an alcohol or a party. Maybe there's someone who gives you a reason to show up late to work. Maybe there's somebody who gives you a reason to skip work. Maybe your cell phone didn't charge at night and you missed your alarm. What now? What choice are you going to make? It's really up to you now. You don't have mom and dad knocking on the door. You don't have anybody pushing you out the door. It's up to you and everyone and everything wants to know, what choice are you going to make? And there's great value in knowing where you came from and that you never forget, and they want you to remember. But at the same time, you have to move forward. You have to take that step. What does that step look like, and what choice are you going to make? I think we can all relate in some fashion to that story. And we're going to continue in our sermon series here called Never Forget, and we're going to be continuing to look at the book of Judges. There's a Bible in the, underneath the seat in front of you. The page number is on the screen. But I think that this scenario ties in well with where we find the Israelites. We find the Israelites at this exact point. And you say, Jeremy, how can that possibly be? There was no high school back then. And the answer is that Joshua... We're sort of in the time between Joshua and we're the time between King Saul. And it's about 330 years. And God's plan was that there was going to be no king, that God would be their king. And so at the end of Joshua, he gathers all the tribes together and he says, hey, let's go back through history. All right? And if you look back at the end of the book of Joshua, it says, don't forget all of the things that God has brought you from. Don't forget about how he worked in Moses' life. Don't forget about how he worked in all these other people's lives to bring you to this point. He's now brought you into the promised land. You are on the cusp of going to go into your glory and into the great next phase of your life. That's where we are. And we have learned through Tim and John, who have spoken in the last couple of weeks, that the promised land got separated by the 12 tribes. Each leader and each tribe took their own section in the promised land, and they moved into the area. Unfortunately, as John talked about last week, is they were told to drive everybody out, but they didn't. They failed to do so. They didn't drive out the, Can they, the Canaanites. They didn't drive all these people away. They chose to live with them, and they chose to allow them to have some area of their lives and of their territory that they would have to then interact with. 
And they were left there in the early part of chapter 3 there to test the Israelites and where they would go and what decisions that they would make. And so that's very similar to on that cusp of, I've just accomplished this great thing, high school, trade school, college, whatever it may be, and now I'm going to step out into this new environment. And for some of you others, it may be a new job. I'm going to step into this, and I have all of this history, yet I have these new things that I have to interact with. And so that is where we find the Israelites. And like all of those people, and like Joshua and everything else, they told them, remember. And the Israelites said, we will. We will worship God. We understand that we're supposed to live under God's authority, and that there really is no one really else that's going to be sort of a ruler. There's no king. There's no monarchy. It doesn't transition down to that person's lineage, to that son. So you have to remember, live under God's authority, and go out and live in this land that I promised Many of you may have to have something similar to this ribbon on your finger or post-it notes on the steering wheel. Um, And no matter what your system is, if you're like me, you've forgotten to pick up the bread. You've forgotten to get milk. You've forgotten to fill the gas uh, in the car. You've forgotten all of these things, some minor, some not so minor. But in the end, we still are trying to remember so that we can continue to make those decisions going forward. So we find the Israelites, and we're going to look at Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And so it says that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. i got to tell you, you guys are a little bit less awake than the first service, all right? I've already done this. I know where we're headed. So this is the part where you can laugh, and if you know Austin Powers, this is the part for you to participate, all right? So they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and what is that evil? That evil could be many things, and we talked about them some last week. We talked about how you trade one God, or you trade the God for another God, the big G God for a little G God, and for those of you who know me, you guys know that I do my best to root for the orange and blue and the Denver Broncos, and I love them and I follow them, and I'm on every possible site that you can to find out what's happening now, just because that's what's really, really, uh, you know, sometimes encompasses my life. And over the last week, I've really been challenged of, man, I better make sure that I don't take that love of that sports team or of competition or of what that looks like and make that a a replacement for God himself. And for those of you who are like me, that you like competition and you like the feelings that it brings to you, you have to really fight that. Some of you have the idea of having to fight self-sufficiency or control or other different things in your life. But whatever that is, in the Israelites' life, they chose to put other things ahead of God. And so they chose to slowly make choices to walk away from God, and they did evil. And it could be a myriad of things. I don't know what that is true for your life, but we have to watch that. But unfortunately, the Israelites fell into that. All right, so then what happened next? So they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And not only that, but they forgot about the Lord, right? Oh, man, not only did they do evil in the sight of the Lord, they forgot So Joshua pulled them together, told them all these stories, said, don't forget, here's a big bow, and oh, they still forgot. Think about this. So you're doing evil, and you've really forgotten the past. You've forgotten the history. You've forgotten where you've come from a little bit. They forgot the Lord, and so they were sort of walking rudderlessly throughout this process, and they had just sort of gotten a little bit lost. 
And so what do you think happens next? Well, after they chose to serve the Baals and the Asherahs, the likely response is what you think. The Lord became angry and his anger burned against them. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishayam, king of Aram Naharim. I hope I got that somewhat close, all right? Of which they became subject to for eight years, right? I don't know if this is what God's anger looks like, but I think we don't want to picture God like this. I think we like to put God in the box of love and joy and mercy and acceptance and we forget that part of God is also he's jealous. He's jealous, God. He only wants you to worship him. He desires to have that relationship. And like any relationship, if one person begins to walk away from that relationship, it makes the other person pretty angry. So I thought, well, what does this look like? What does this mean? God sold them over to this other king, a king that doesn't love them, a king that doesn't care for them, a king that doesn't know what's best for them, and yet he said, it's okay for you to be underneath of their control. And so I said, what does this look like? And I think what it looks like is, it looks like a dad saying, go to your room. Go to your room. I don't want to see you. And if I keep seeing you, I'm going to do something bad. So go away. All right? Because... Dads, it's Father's Day, so I think we can all understand that we've made some good choices and made some bad choices, all right? Let's be real. But I think that we sometimes let the anger get the better part of us sometimes. And I'm not going to say that that's what happened to God. He's perfect, so we'll let him slide on this one. He had a righteous anger. Sometimes we have an unrighteous anger, but he sent his kids away and said, go away, I don't want to be with you, I'm very, very upset with you. And he pushed them off, and he locked them underneath this king and made them subject to the, the king for a number of eight years, but what's not documented, but what I know to be true is that because of what I know in my own life is that the pieces that you don't see is that at the same time that God told them to do this and or sort of put them under this, the, the subject of this king, he kind of did this, kind of walked over to the door and he just kind of sat down or he leaned up against the door of where his kids were at. And if he's like me at all, he prayed, man, did I make a mistake did something go wrong? Man, how I love these people. So I'm going to push them away or I'm going to put them under the subject of this king, but I'm not going away. I'm not turning my back. I'm not far. I'm still here. The Israelites may not necessarily know that, but that's the picture that I have, a picture of a dad outside of the door of his kid's bedroom just waiting for them to do something and ask him or crawl back to him and to try to help make the relationship right again. Well, the text says that they were subject to the king for over eight years. However, <clears throat> eventually, we all kind of get tired. We kind of get tired of our own decisions. We kind of realize that maybe some of the decisions that we made have beat us up pretty good, and we wave the white flag and so they cried out. They cried out to the Lord, and he decided that he was going to provide them with a deliverer. So <clears throat> who better and who more virtuous than Superman? So the text says that the Israelites, <clears throat> but when they cried out to the Lord, verse 9 here, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. 
the Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishayim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered them. And then the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So here what we can see is they cried out. They cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, please save us. Please help us. We need help. And so then the Lord said, okay, I hear you. I hear you, my people. I'm going to raise up a deliverer, and I'm going to now put my spirit down upon this individual, and they are going to be risen up, and they're going to help save you. Now, I will not ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever heard of the judge Othniel? Yeah, probably not many of you. I, too, had not really heard of Othniel. It's kind of funny, you think back among the people that you know, those that do the right thing, those that always, you know, uh, who we would say are lily white, they always make the right choices, they always do the right thing, they're always in the right place, sometimes kind of get lost. But later in this sermon series, you'll hear about a guy named Samson, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Samson's story is much more well-known than Othniel's story, and it's not more well-known because of how great and virtuous Samson was, jawbone included, and if you don't know what that means, foreshadowing of Pastor John later in the series. But most of you have heard of the judge Samson, but not many of us have heard of Othniel, but Othniel was a guy whose spirit of the Lord came upon them, and he was able to raise them up, and he was able to deliver his people out of bondage and into peace. So we'll just take a quick review of this story and just look at this. So the Israelites, again, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then they not only that, they forgot the Lord, and they served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and so he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishayim, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject to for eight years. But then they cried, and he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and then he became Israel's judge. The Lord gave Cushan Rishayim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, and who overpowered them, and they had peace until Othniel died. Right, so many of you may remember Othniel. He at least came into the story, at least originally, uh, in chapter 1 of Judges, and he was given uh, a woman by the name of <coughs> Aksherah as his wife, uh, who was Caleb's daughter, uh, and that was because he had uh, conquered uh, Kirath Shirim. I may have that name wrong. You can go back to Judges 1.13 to make sure I got that name right. I think, feel like I just butchered it. Anyway, um, so he had a little bit of history of doing the right thing. He got um, Ashkerah because he did uh, the right thing in chapter 1, and he was given that as, uh, as his wife. And so what we learned there is that he, is, he took Ashkerah as part of his wife, and she was from the tribe of Judah. Now, he was Israel's first judge, and you may wonder, well, what's the difference between a judge and a king? And we briefly talked about that, in that a king is someone who has sort of a monarchy, and that person rules, and then eventually that person dies, and then their heir takes over and just sort of continues that lineage. Well, Othniel being the first judge, and in, the, um, and in that time, judges were not necessarily succeeded by anyone. The, the plan, again, was that God would be their king, that God would be their ruler, and that they really didn't need to have a human or earthly ruler, that they would just follow under God's direction. 
However, that didn't follow according to that plan. So Othniel came, and he was the judge. So he was just an individual raised up at a certain time, at a certain place, and was able to do a certain thing, okay? And until he would ultimately die, everything would sort of be okay. But then eventually, that judge would pass away, and as we saw last week, the cycle would sort of continue, all right? And we're going to go through another example of that. But the Israelites are doing okay, then they do evil, they get put under oppression, they, raise, they cry out, they give a deliverer, they live in peace, the judge dies, and the cycle continues, okay? And so in this case, we're talking about a judge from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes uh, that was there. And so Othniel was the first judge, the first one of these rulers uh, from the time from, you know, eventually Joshua, eventually until we got to King Saul, okay? But Othniel was the first and so what we see here is the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And we will contrast this a little bit with, another, with other judges in that because Othniel really wanted to do the right thing and that he wanted to work with God to defeat his enemies, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He worked directly with God. There's not a lot of detail or narrative on exactly how that happened other than the fact that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He was able to get success and then he was able to defeat the enemy and able to move on. And so um, he was able to work together with God. He didn't come up with his own plan. He didn't come up with his own devices. He worked with the Lord. The Lord was with him and that they were able to defeat their enemy. And so in some senses, he did things the right way. He did things the right way, meaning he followed God's plan for this process to happen. And he walked through those things the right way. We are going to contrast that when we continue on, and we'll see some other judges not only today but also later, in that there may not always be some guys and some judges and leaders that do things the right way. But Othniel was kind of that first one, the firstborn, the example, and the Spirit blessed him, he defeated the enemy, and he did things the right way. So we're going to continue on in our, in our series, and again, again with the cycle, we'll see here in verse 12, that again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over them. Now, interesting to note here that the Israelites did evil again. So they repeated this cycle. Othniel dies, and now they've fallen back again, and they started making these choices. They started making little g's in place of the God, and they sort of began to walk away from him again. And so they did evil. And so this time, they walked away. But what don't you see in this verse that we saw earlier? It doesn't mention that they forgot God. It doesn't mention that they forgot him. That was in Othniel's story, that the people forgot God, that they didn't remember. But in this one, not only did they, is it not mentioned that they didn't forget God, though then you have to assume that they did remember, which means they still remembered what things were like. They just remembered what God had brought them through with Othniel and all of that that they had just come through. Yet they still chose to do evil and they still chose not to follow the Lord. So this time they remembered, but they made other choices in which God's anger and burned against them and they then continued to do evil. And so he handed them over to Eglon. What else don't you see in this? <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. We'll continue on. And for some of you, I'm gonna, I apologize, but for this one, in case some of you wonder about the Bible not giving a lot of specifics, we're about to get real specific, and that's going to sort of disband this notion. And for you younger people in the room, I apologize. This may be a little too graphic 
for you as we go throughout this morning. All right? So Eglon gets the Amorites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked the Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. All right? So now they're under duress, they've been attacked, and they're going to be subject to Eglon for 18 years. The Israelites are now subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And I don't want to say that your second punishment is always worse than your first. However, God punished the first eight, only eight years under Othniel before he raised him up. Now they got punished for 18 years. I don't know. We'll see if that continues in that cycle or not going forward. But they were now subject to Eglon for 18 years. However, <clears throat> the Israelites again cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. I'm not sure that's terribly important, but we'll find out. The son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent with him a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So here again, the Israelites got tired of being oppressed. They got tired of these 18 years of being underneath Eglon's power. And so they cried out. The interesting thing to point out is in both of these stories, both with Othniel and with Ehud, there's no mention of, Israelite, of the Israelites repenting. There's no mention that they turned from their wicked ways. There's no mention that they you know, stopped, realized what they were doing wrong, and repented. There's no turning. There's no asking of forgiveness or asking uh, a repenting of what they did wrong. It's more, huh, I'm in trouble. I don't even really necessarily know how I got here. And I'm not terribly committed to stopping what I, I did to get here. However, I need some help. Right? So they cried out again to the Lord. Okay? And even though there was no mention of repentance, it wasn't a requirement for God to step in. If they didn't have to repent, God still showed up because he wasn't that far away. So God decides to raise up a deliverer, this time again Ehud, and he was a left-handed man. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, foot, foot and a half, which he then strapped to his right thigh underneath his clothing. Okay. So we realize that now Ehud is left-handed, and for those of you who were alive in medieval times, probably sitting in the back right-hand corner, you know that when you are fighting and you need to get your sword, you always put your sword on the opposite side of your body. So if you're right-handed, you put it on your left side so you can pull it out and pull it across. Ehud's not right-handed. He's left-handed, so it makes sense that he put things on his right side of his body. So the interesting thing here is, is that in those times, not many people were left-handed. And not just that, if you were left-handed, you were looked down upon as having some sort of disability or deformity or some other really awful thing, you know, a disease or something like that. And so the world just went around saying the right-handed person's the power person, and we're not even going to believe that any sort of left-handed person would have anything to do with anything that's going on. And so this will play out later in some of the details, but it's really somewhat important that Ehud was left-handed and that he was able to put things on his right thigh as part of whatever his plan was in what he was going to do to deliver them. So he fashions his sword, he puts it on the right side, and now they're going to go to Eglon and they're going to present a tribute, which would be a sacrifice, an offering, um, and just to... <clears throat> Show, uh, somewhat show a little bit of their devotion. So here in verse 17 it says, He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man, of which I'm slightly offended. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent away, he sent those on his way that had carried it. I'm not sure why it's important to know that Eglon was a fat man. I mean, he probably was a very good looking man. 
right? But in this case, Eglon is being presented with an offering or with a sacrifice, okay? And so he is being honored, and in the midst of that, you know, there's a little play in here that possibly Ehud is trying to gain some trust with Eglon for some of the things that are going to come up later. But at this point, the tribute has been offered, it has been accepted, and sort of everybody is on their way back. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself, that would be Ehud, went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his ascendants, or his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. So everybody leaves. Ehud says, You know what? I got to go back. I'm not done here. This job isn't finished. So he goes back and he says, Hey, Eglon, I got a secret message for you. Eglon says, Great, this ought to be fun. So he sends everybody away. Now at this point, Ehud has gained access to Eglon. So Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, he gave him that message. And so he reached in with his left hand, drew the sword from his right hand, and plunged it into the king's belly. It's a pretty straightforward message. All right? Not just that, but even the handle sunk into the blade and his bowels discharged there's your details. Ehud did not pull the sword at, out. The fat closed in over it. So Eglon said, look, I really appreciate this sword. I'm going to keep it, all right? Uh, I'm not going to let you walk away with this thing, all right? And so obviously, um, you know, the fat closed in over it, and the sword was there. <clears throat> and then at this point, Ehud then went out onto the porch, closed the doors behind him, and locked them, Okay? After he had gone, the servants came and they found the doors of the upper room locked and they said, ah, he must be relieving himself and they were in a room of the palace. So everybody left, okay? Eglon, or uh, Ehud locks the doors and is on his way back. The attendants go, hey, where's Eglon, right? Well, they can't get in. Oh, it's okay. He's a fat man. He must be relieving himself, right? So that's what they do, all right? And so they just sort of waited and waited and waited and you start thinking, what are all these details leading to? Well, they waited to the point of embarrassment, and when they did not <clears throat> open the doors, but when the doors of the room did not open, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw that the Lord had fallen on the floor dead. So now at this point, they waited so long that they had to go in, they get the doors open, and there's Eglon on the floor dead. And the point of all of this is that while they waited, Ehud got away. All right? He passed by the stone images, and he escaped to Sarah. All right, so let's sort of recap this a little bit. Ehud brings a tribute. He gets a little bit of trust with Eglon. They all start to leave. He comes back. When he comes back, even though he got checked and he got you know, patted down by the guards, because he's left-handed, he put the sword on the right side. The guards never checked it because they wouldn't have considered look for a left-handed man to have a sword on the right thigh because everybody only puts it on the other side. So he gains access. He has trust. He tells the Eglon, I got a secret for you. Somehow Eglon tells all his guys, ah, this is fine. They leave. Ehud stabs and kills him, locks the doors, and escapes. All right? When he arrived, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. And he says... Follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. 
they allowed no one to cross the river. So then at this point, they struck down 10,000 Mohabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. So the question is, this story has a lot more detail in it than the story with Othniel, we'd all can agree. Some of it interesting. And you start to wonder, what can we take from this? What does this mean? At Ehud, and we say, well, he was not as squeaky clean as Othniel. And you sit there and you say, well, what exactly do you mean, Jeremy? And what I mean by that is that he uses deception. If you look at Othniel's story, the most, one of the most important verses is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. If you look back at the story with Ehud, there's no mention of that. There's no mention that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. There's no mention that that happened in order for this deliverance to happen. There was no mention that that's what happened between these two, that they didn't connect God and Ehud, okay? And so Ehud sort of went on his own plan. At least that's the inference. That's what it says, or that's what it feels like, is if the Spirit of the Lord didn't come upon him and he didn't necessarily work with God to decide this plan, then he's the one who says, I'm going to make this sword. He's the one who says, I'm going to go and do this tribute, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to use my left-handedness as a way to sneak in and have an opportunity to kill the king. He uses this deception in order to pull off this great assassination of Eglon. And I'm just not so sure that I believe that that's the way that God works. I don't believe that God works by us with deception. I don't think God wants us to put together a plan and use deception as a means of a way to accomplish some goal that we're trying to accomplish. Okay? God is a God of transparency and of honesty, and so I just don't think that he really was on board with the crafting of this plan. Okay? And so that's part of this whole idea of the fact that you know, Ehud probably wasn't as necessarily connected to the Lord or had a lot more flaws uh, than Othniel did. All right? We also had learned that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, so we get the idea that he was from that area, unlike Othniel, who was from the tribe of Judah. Um, but um, he was from a different tribe, so this took place at a, at a different location. All right? The other thing to learn is that other, even though he had used deception, it goes to show that God used Ehud's flaws to accomplish the desired outcome. The outcome was still that Eglon would, and the Moabites would get conquered, that Israel would have deliverance. And so even though God necessarily wasn't on board with this great plan that Ehud came up with, he used it to help accomplish the desired outcome. And if you really think about it, he really helped reward Ehud's faith. Because Ehud didn't really know for sure that they weren't going to check his right side. I mean, he put the sword there, and he probably had an inkling that I'm not going to get checked, but he didn't know for sure he had to have God's help. And even though he went back, he didn't necessarily know that Eglon would see him, even by saying, I have a secret for you. He can't really know for sure that Eglon would give him a forum by which he could communicate. He didn't necessarily know that he would not only get a chance to talk to Eglon, but that he would have an opportunity to talk to Eglon by himself, that Eglon would send all of his attendants away. And so 
even as part of this plan was working out, Ehud didn't have all of the details and didn't have everything worked out, but God filled in the gaps. And so he rewarded Ehud's faith in that you may not have all of the things worked out, but if God calls you and says, hey, make a step, do something, step out, God fills in the gaps. And so I think that one of those things is to think about Ehud's faith is that he did do that. He did step out. And I don't know what God may or may not be calling you to, but maybe he's calling you to give a hand uh, of friendship to someone. Maybe he's calling you to give someone a hug. Maybe he's calling you to help someone out. I don't know what faith thing God is asking of you to do, but know that God wants to reward when we step out in faith, whatever that looks like. And I don't necessarily know exactly what that means for you, but he stepped out in faith and God filled in the gaps and God rewarded Ehud's faith. And not only that, he worked with a flawed individual, a flawed human, and in some senses, a very flawed plan. All right? But God still worked. And so it shows us that God can work with us because we are all flawed. We're all flawed people. I don't know what brought you here today, but God can still use you to be active in many, many other people's lives because he also used Ehud, who was a flawed individual. Lastly, we need to look at the Israelites. All right? Many things to talk about with the Israelites, but obviously number one is that they had forgot God and what he had done for them. They had begun to make many, many bad choices. They continued to do evil in the sight uh, of the Lord and, and at various times. And so they had forgotten what they had done for them. And so I think the reminder here is we need to do our best not to forget what God has done for us. And so depending upon if you're up on a mountaintop and you're having a great experience and life is good, we can forget that God helped get you there. Or you may be here this morning and you may be living in a valley and you might be facing a really tough time and I don't know what that looks like for you. But you might be really down in the valley going, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place. Okay? But at the same time, we also have to remember that God is there with you. We can't forget God. We can't forget the things that he has done for you and done for his people over time. He's God who makes sure that he follows and takes care of his promises to his people. Right? We also have to remember that the Israelites traded God for other gods. So like last week when John was talking about, you know, a God of self-sufficiency or financial stability or sports or different things, that we need to make sure that we are looking at our lives and not taking second place things and putting them in the first place. That a first place thing, which is God, stays in that place. But the Israelites traded that and so depending upon where you are and the different things that you have to face each day, you need to make sure that you are trying to do our best to put God ahead of some of those things that are those little gods. And I know for me that that happens very subtly and very quietly, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not this big thing of, oh, I'm going to put this in front of God, but we have to always be cognizant and aware that we don't trade God for other things and other influences that are coming around in our lives. Also, we can understand that they cried out to the Lord and that there is no mention of repentance. So it's not a requirement for God to respond in your life that there's some type of repentance. It's a relationship. God desires to have a relationship with you like he desires to have a relationship with the Israelites. And he merely wants you to say, I need you. And when you say that, he is right there. He is not far away. They were saved by God because he was always near. Even in the midst of his anger and of his displeasure, he was still right there. God didn't go anywhere. 
He was there to work with them, to help save them, and to respond when they needed him. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what exactly is there. But if you're fearful, like, well, I just, I can't turn to God now. God doesn't understand. I have too much shame. I have too much guilt. I've done too many things. I'm pretty sure that what you've done may or may not compare to what the Israelites had done. I mean, they had worshipped golden idols and other gods and put these things ahead of them, and they had done some pretty awful things. Yet they cried out, and God was there for them. And God will be there for you as well. When we make these choices, and just like the Israelites made these choices, every time you take the opportunity to put a small God in front of the God, or you choose to make something bigger than it is, you walk away. God doesn't walk away from us. We walk away from him. And we have to learn that we need to try to do our best to, when we do walk away to remember that he is always near. But we just need to know that God does not walk away from us. He does not walk away from you. We walk away from him. But in the end, like the Israelites learned through these two stories, he's never too far. You're never too far gone that God can't find you. You're never too far that God isn't there to respond. You're never, ever too far that God can't be there to help you. Please listen to this song and see if it hits home. <laughs>